Hey guys, so a couple weeks ago, I wrote this article called 10 Prophecies for the Web3 Age. Um, in this article, I basically wrote down a bunch of things that I think will be happening in the next, uh, I would say, 10 to 20 years directionally wise. I'm not saying like precisely it will happen in the way that I predicted, but I, I think these are more or less the things that I see like in the train um, will be happening as uh, the Web3 technologies take hold in society and being adopted by, by uh, more and more users in the mainstream. So after this article, again, I will post it in the comment in the link, uh, post the link of the article in the video description below, okay? But um, I got a lot of questions on this article and also on the article that I posted on Wired recently um, about how to think about these uh, you know, layer one blockchains of proof of stake um, blockchains as uh, metaverse national economies. So um, there are a bunch of questions about these and I'm going to go through some of them uh, today because there are really a lot of them. So let's get into them. Uh, the first question is from Robin Land. How about tokenizing commercial real estate debt? So this is regarding to my comment that I said Actually, the, the, the first uh, prediction I wrote down is uh, hyper-tokenization of everything. I think all the assets that we know as assets today in the traditional asset markets, you know, real estate, bonds, stocks, in fact, anything that you can have a cash flow attached to it will be tokenized in the future. Why? Because blockchains, public blockchains is where the liquidities will be in the future. And uh, it's just like, you know, in the web two age, everybody has to go on social media, whether you like it or not, everybody, you know, a lot of people I know, like just absolutely hate social media. But still, you know, if you want to get known, if you want to communicate your idea, you have to be on social media. And same thing with web three, because it's a internet of uh, value exchanges, right? So if you want to um, acquire capital, if you want investment, you have to be on, on the blockchain. So that's, that's the internet analogy that I'm seeing that I expect to play out for the Web3 space. So this question, how about tokenizing <laughs> real estate? But you know, um, but the thing is these, these tokenization, it goes through stages, right? First you, you obviously you, you have the lower hanging fruit that are assets that are already native on-chain metaverse assets like, you know, maybe blockchain gaming and NFT assets or, you know, digital art. And uh, the Bitcoin and Ethereum of the world, that's needless to say, right? So those will be the first batch of tokenized assets or the new assets that are, you know, originally created already in token in 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 the hash token form but how about these traditional assets i think eventually they will be on chain um but things like real estate what i expect will be really the last uh, the last uh, frontier it will be the laggers of the of the movement of moving tokens on uh, moving assets on chain why because this is a space um that is heavily regulated you can see the same happening in the web 2 space the two actually very, very important sectors 
that really, really need disruptions and, and you know, digitization can do a lot to improve productivity is healthcare and education. But you actually don't see those two spaces are evolving or being digitalized very, very slowly because they are heavily regulated sectors, especially healthcare, right? So everybody complained about healthcare is so expensive, so inefficient. You know, if we introduce like web technologies, there are so many, you know, efficiency gains that can be made. And, uh, you know, last year, last couple of years with, with the COVID situation, you actually see the telehealth uh, space grew by leaps and bounds because of this ex exogenous shock that actually expedited the trend of the industry. But overall, you know, you, you, you've heard about, you know, digital education, digital healthcare for so long, but in fact, the sectors, you know, the, the actual digital economy part of these two sectors are extremely small compared to the traditional healthcare and education. So what I'm saying, I think this will be the same for uh, moving off-chain assets on chain like real estate, because, you know, like, because I, I think the fundamental roadblock here is the, a lot of legal, legal rights issues. Like right now, if you have an NFT of a house, right? You, you obviously, it's very easy to create an NFT house. Anybody can do it. But the thing is, what does it even mean? If you create an NFT of, of a, like a property deed, it's not the deed itself. It's only the property deed, that piece of paper is being recognized by the, you know, country's legal, legal system. So that NFT of your deed is not being protected by law in any, you know, in any case, and it's not being recognized by law as a symbol of the property right. So holding that NFT of a house means what? Uh, it's, it's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely unclear right now. It definitely doesn't mean that you own a house. That's for sure in, in the legal term, right? So um, that's that's what I see is like a lot of those legal issues are going to be very thorny issues that's gonna take a long time to sort out. And these things like, you know, legislations um, and the legal changes, uh, it's, it's very, very slow moving variable that's going to definitely be laggards of the system. So for example, um, I know some projects right now, they're trying to do on-chain mortgages, right? So like for, there, there are different projects that are trying to do this. Um, you know, you, 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 you uh, issue token um, to, you know, uh, collect capital, collect funding to buy, either to buy the houses or to do mortgage lending to, to actual people who buy the houses and the, you know, mortgage payment, then you use the mortgage payment to pay back to as cash flow, cash flow for your token holders, or you lend out the houses that you buy um, some of the other projects, you lend out the houses you buy and you have rental payment that, that's being used to, as cash flow for your token holders. Now, all of these things sound very good on paper, right? Um, and it sounds so simple, but in reality, it really, it's a lot of legal issues, um, like I just talked about. And, and, and for example, in, in the case of, you know, if you tokenize a mortgage, what, what, is, what does it even mean if, if, if your house is in default? Like who can seize, the, who has the right of the house, right? Is, is that a company that, that issues the token and has the right of the house? Then what, what does it mean for, for you as the token holder? You, you don't have the claim, any claim on the house at all, right? So um, all these things, <laughs> it just, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it just uh, requires a lot of uh, um, 
working around the legal system and probably signing a lot of paperwork, even if you buy the token, which sounds like a, a simple thing. Um, I, well, but you definitely see the benefit, right? The benefit is uh, you definitely lower the entry barrier for the retail investors, and you kind of you in- introduce us more liquidity for the average investors. So if you um, invest in like a mortgage mortgage backed security, first of all, not everybody can invest in those, right? So entry barrier is higher, and also the liquidity is lower. But with the token, you know, as long as you have a automatic market maker, the unit swap or one out somewhere, and you can trade a token, someone has a liquidity pool for it, you have liquidity from day one. So these definitely makes the entry barrier lower, you know, makes uh, these assets, these cash flows more accessible for average investors and make the assets more liquid. But again, a bunch of uh, thorny issues behind it, right? So um, basically legal protection utterly lacking for stuff like that. Um, for any project that's bridging off-chain with on-chain assets. So it probably takes many years, just like your healthcare and education situation. Um, second question, would big, this is from Timothy L. Would Bitcoin suit, suit what? Um, let me read this, a bit of, I need a bit of context, okay. Um, okay, and there is another question that's similar from Lorenzo G. Uh, what about Bitcoin here? Seems pretty obvious. Why don't you cite BTC? Ah, I see, I see. Okay, so this is response to another um, prediction that I made in this article, and I said there will be, you know, the emergence of super currencies on chain. And and by the super by super currency, I mean like maybe one or two, definitely no more than five. <laughs> I don't think will be more than five of those global currencies that will be used as a medium of exchange on chain, like across the globe, across multiple countries. And uh, you see this uh, right now, the most dominant super currency on chain, on any blockchain platform is USD stablecoin, right? Tether and USDC and maybe some of the, um, you know, algo stablecoins, but those are also US dollar stablecoins. So, that is really the, the, the number one super currency that we see on the blockchain today. And you need this, these super currencies because you have, once you have so, so many tokens, well, for multiple reasons. One obvious reason is, is uh, you know, obviously, you know, crypto is a very volatile spy, space right now, you know, um, all the token prices that go up and down like crazy every day, right? So you need some kind of, uh, you know, relatively stable measuring your stick as a measure of value uh, on chain so that you can exchange tokens. And US dollar is being the strongest uh, fiat currency in the world that's serving the purpose right now. And also the more important reason is actually because there are so many tokens, you have like, you know, thousands of crypto assets being traded every day, right? So in order to create liquidity between these, among these tokens, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's very complicated if you don't have the kind of intermediary asset like a USD stablecoin, because if you don't have that kind of a bridging asset, essentially, um, you will be like creating, you know, uh, trading pairs between any one, any two of those crypto assets. That means if you have n tokens, you need like uh, n times n minus one uh, divided by two trading pairs. 
So that that's like an extreme segmentation of liquidity, right? It's extremely inefficient. But if you have a on-chain measuring yardstick like USD stablecoin, you just need every token have a liquidity pool uh, with USD stablecoin, and then you can trade using that stablecoin as your intermediate as intermediary asset to trade across different uh, crypto tokens. So it's way more efficient. So what is essentially happening right now is blockchain has essentially created another brand new use case for US dollar. Now US dollar already is like a most coveted, um, you know, fiat currency in the world, especially in developing countries in emerging market countries where the local currency is not as stable or is not that credible, right? People in those countries, they already want, want US dollar. And now with all this uh, crypto trading, it's really creating this an, another use case, brand new use case and you know market demand for US dollar stablecoin. And uh, so, so that's why you're seeing, I, I was saying US dollar is the number one super currency in the world. And in this moat of uh, this uh, you know competitive advantage of US dollar is not gonna go away anytime soon because these network effect is just a compound add to itself because when you already have a US dollar that has the deepest, uh, thickest, the biggest liquidity vis-a-vis -vis any other tokens, right? It just uh, naturally draws people to use stablecoin, use US dollar more because who wants to trade a, a pair of tokens that has thin liquidity, right? So you definitely want to trade tokens that, that are more liquid, that gives you, you know, less of, uh, 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 like for most, for most investors, unless you're traders like trading those arbitrary opportunities, right? For most investors, you don't want to be, uh, you know, you, you don't want a huge bid and ask gap um, when you trade, right? You want a liquid market. So that, that make people gravitate towards, you know, using US dollar more that really adds on itself. It's a net network effect that is self-reinforcing. So in that sense, I said US dollar will be the super currency, but you, will, you probably also will see the crypto native super currency if we will have a stable representation of the value of goods and services uh, for on-chain purpose that is native to the crypto world. So I think that will be happening. So I think this is, yeah, so this is where these questions are coming from. So people are asking, would, would, would Bitcoin be that super currency? And I, I, I think if you watched some of my previous videos, you probably guessed my answer now. And my answer is no. Why? Because um, it, it really, to, to I, I think Bitcoin right now, it's already established, established itself pretty well as a, store value asset, right? But that is a totally different thing from a medium of exchange. And to be a medium of exchange, you need a stable valuation. You, you need a price fluctuate a way less than what Bitcoin's um, price um, volatility is currently, right? So um, you really need something that can represent on-chain, represent the unit of account for goods and services being offered on-chain, but at the same time, it's not like fluctuating a lot. Okay, so um, because you know, as as a, as a measuring tool, you it's like if you have if you have a yardstick, you you that the length of the yardstick itself, it doesn't make sense for it to go, you know, uh, longer and shorter, uh, you know, every hour or every day, right? You want it to stay constant. 
So um, that's why I, I think Bitcoin is not going to serve that purpose. Now, some people will say, oh, it's the price is volatile because Bitcoin is still a very young asset. And in the future, the volatility, volatility will go down. Um, I don't think that will happen, actually. I, I think the volatility will continue being high. It will probably go down, yes, but it will not be so low to the extent of um, to the extent that you can you can use it as as uh, as a me measurement as a reliable measurement of value. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised if it if you go down to the volatility level, level of a you know large cap stock, but still that's that's not good not nearly good enough. And and the reason why this is I I don't think the the valuation is going to be. Um, why I think the valuation of Bitcoin is going to stay volatile is because there's no underlying economy that's supporting the demand of Bitcoin. The the fiat currency values, um, especially for the currencies of large economies, their values are relatively stable because the underlying demand for those currencies coming from real economic activities are relatively stable, right? You 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 have so many numbers of transactions happening in the United States or in the European Union every year. And that amount of transactions is relatively predictable, right? And, you know, the GDP growth always said, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, two or three percent, one to three percent every year. So you amount of transaction always grow every year, but it's not a hugely, you know, a wildly fluctuating number. So and that is the fundamental demand that is supporting the value, supporting the value of the currency and supporting the demand of the currency. So um, because the underlying, you know, activity is stable, then that leads to the valuation of the currency being stable, um, let alone that, you know, central banks also, you know, sometimes try to do open market operation to smooth out the volatility of their currencies. But really, that is the small part of why the valuation is stable for most of the good fiat. OK, um, and Bitcoin doesn't have that. And it's so 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 far away from having a real underlying economy and uh i don't think that will ever ever happen actually so this goes back to you know some people um actually i said something like that on twitter and some people were trying to say okay how about lightning network um you know you can use bitcoin for transactions it, there will be an economy built on top of this uh, well what i think is you know, whatever you, you can use Bitcoin to do, you can use stable coins like USD stable coins to do better. Um, you can use uh, the USD stable coin uh, to transact cross border or send remittances or, you know, do whatever, settle payments very, very easily and very, very cheaply. Well, on Ethereum, it's probably a little more expensive, but on other, you know, newer chains, it's very cheap. So it compared to if you were to use Bitcoin to make transactions, right? Um, some of the Bitcoin payment applications these days, what they're trying to do is uh, you pay in one currency and they exchange that currency into Bitcoin, right? And they, they, send, they send the Bitcoin to a different, to the destination uh, a wallet and uh, they um, exchange that Bitcoin into, into another um, currency. Uh, that it, it's the recipient currency. So in, in the process, you, you incur this uh, risk of, uh, you know, exchange volatility, right? So as we said, the Bitcoin is uh, still relatively volatile. 
currency. So um, versus stablecoin transaction, you, you do not have to make these conversions you know, most of the time. So you do not have that exchange rate risk. So once you have that exchange rate risk, you have to be the whoever's make that making that payment transaction have to be compensated for that risk, right? So usually it adds to the cost of that transaction. Um, it could it, you can you maybe you may think that's a small cost, right? And it's probably a smaller cost compared to the traditional Western Union or something like that. It's very very inefficient, uh, you know, payment. To, uh, processors, but compared to stablecoin transactions, that is still a you know higher cost. So I just don't see how this going to compete. So um, I, I I think I think you know you you go as, as a currency that does not have the underlying stability. You want to gain a uh, underlying demand from real economy, basically go from zero to one while you have this other competition right after you like which is stable coin which is already stable you you in order to cross that chasm from zero to one is extremely difficult and i just don't i'm just not positive about that um okay um in, instead i think what will happen is so we may have the on-chain native uh, stable coins that are not pegged to us dollars but instead pegged to some kind of in indices of uh, the value of goods goods and services in the economy. So an example is, um, you know, the new FPI token from Frax. Uh, from Frax Finance, they have this new token that is trying to track the, um, you know, CPI index uh, using this token, right? So um, I think this is a more sensible approach uh, You you because this is like a, you're, you're already targeting the use case of being a stable medium of exchange, okay, while being on chain and not dependent on any fiat currency. So keep in mind, because the US dollar value is stable because someone is trying to manage it, right? So whether they do a good job or not, that's a different question. But the Federal Reserve is trying to manage the value of the currency to make it relative stable, uh, measuring your stake relative to CPI, relative to inflation. So, um, so ba basically, right now the crypto economy is basically piggybacking, piggyback, uh, piggybacking that by you know um, pegging the value of the stablecoin to U.S. dollar, knowing that someone else is managing the value of a sta uh, of that is stabilizing the value of U.S. dollar, right? But over time, you could have you know these uh, you know on-chain native crypto tokens that directly track the value of. Uh, a consumer index or a basket of a basket of goods and services on chain. So, I, I'm actually more optimistic about that type of approach. But whether they get adopted or not, that's a totally different question because this is still a very, very, very new thing. Okay, uh, so that's that. Okay, next question from Xbit eighty eight X. Do you imagine governments will want to? use public or private blockchains for their CBDCs. So this is in, in response to something I said in my Wired magazine article. I said um, these, uh, you know, on-chain economies, layer one, layer two blockchains, they have their monetary and fiscal policies that are being programmed on chain. So it's separate from any human discretion and therefore is 
more easily enfor enforceable, and that, that is one advantage over some of the more discretionary fiscal and monetary policies that are executed by governments in like a traditional uh, economic policies, right? Um, so that's maybe something I think, you know, the issuers of CBDCs, because governments all try to do their CBDCs these days. Maybe that's something that, you know, governments can look into in thinking about how they actually structure their CBDC. So in terms of where they will actually issue their CBDC, would they use the public blockchain or would they use their own separate private blockchain or their just, you know, separate individual chain? I, I, I don't think most of the governments are looking to issue CBDC directly on Ethereum or Solana of the world. Um, <laughs> why? <laughs> because I, you know, obviously they want more control, they want more customization, they want to be able to control every parameter of, of, uh, of this uh, whole process. And that is, uh, you know, I think that, that that thought process is completely natural, right? They want to control the, um, you know, programmability. Uh, they want to control the security. They want to um, basically be in charge. But the thing is, I, I think that's actually a mistake because um, I, I, I think a lot of these governments, they think um, they are going to issue a CBDC and that, and, and that will be, that, and, and call it a day, and that will be their uh, comeback. Uh, to to the to uh, the increasing adoption of crypto, but the thing is, um, if you read something I wrote earlier, it's like the biggest threat to these national currencies, traditional national currencies, is actually U.S. dollar stable coins, for the reasons that we just talked about, because U.S. dollar is really becoming a super currency in the crypto world. So and the advantage of stable coin is it's so easy to use, right? You can use it on. It's, it's being represented in all the public blockchains. And uh, if, if you're a CBDC of any country, non-US dollar country, if it's not interoperable with other on-chain tokens, what is the point? <laughs> so uh, how, how are you going to counter the increasing adoption of US dollar stablecoin? Um, so, so I, I, I don't think uh, most governments are thinking this part through, actually. Um, I, I think it will be a mistake. And it's, it will be a mistake that people will realize this, this, this later and try to backtrack. Uh, at least that will happen for some countries. I, because I, I think if you have a CBDC, you better make it interoperable in one way or another uh, to with uh, with the public blockchain assets. Even if you don't issue it on Ethereum, Solana, or Avalanche, you issue it on your own blockchain, you better make it interoperable. Um, that that will be the way to go to to, to actually make, make the national currency, uh, you know, have some adoption and do something in, in the Web3 age. Um, but that, that will probably be for another day for, for the national government, for most national governments, okay? Uh, next question on Anders L. Do you think governments will allow ID-less, ID-less crypto wallets in the future? You don't think they will pull the Terra financing or a AML card? Or do you think they won't be able to uphold such a law? So this is, this is uh, responding to, um, 
what I said in this like you know you know ten prophecies article, I said, um, you know, uh, in the Web three age, you you will have these uh, cross border capital flow would not mean much. Would lose its meaning because it's very hard to track these crypto wallets because they are idealists and faceless, right? So, um, so that that's in response to my comment regarding that. But but the thing is, even if you 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 attach ID to crypto wallets, you do not change the nature of the fact that the crypto wallets are nationless, right? So I I have an Ethereum wallet. It it's like it, it I take it with me wherever I go. It doesn't make sense to say I have an Ethereum wallet in the U United States or I have an Ethereum wallet in Canada, right? So traditionally, how do you how do you count cross border capital flow? If I have a bank account in U.S. in in a bank in the United States, and I move that money from my U.S. bank account to my Canadian bank account. You know that is capital outflow, right? It goes from 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 a you know U.S. bank to a Canadian bank. But you know the the blockchain space created this tier of uh, of value exchange that sits beyond any national border. It's completely it it does not it it does not know any national boundaries, right? So what what does it mean if I move? Um, you you know the government can can know you know this wallet is attached to Tasha it's you know it's my name or my face attached to this wallet but does not change the fact that if I move token from this Ethereum wallet to some other Ethereum wallet or to my Solana wallet it 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 has it has nothing to do with cross border flow how do you count such things right so that's that's why I said these cross these uh, concept of cross-border capital flows will gradually lose its meaning in the Web3 age when you have this uh, gigantic tier of uh, value exchange system that's sitting on top of any geographical boundaries. It's like, you know, the internet, right? It's borderless. So um, you don't have the Canadian internet or the US internet. You, you can browse the website of uh, Whatever a website is is on the internet, right? So, um, but but so 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 the thing is, uh, in traditionally, why why do governments care about these cross border flows? Because it tells you a lot. It gives you a lot of information, right? So you 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 don't want like a, a volatile short term, um, yeah, like a volatile changes of cross border flows in the short term because that usually. Um, it, it, it usually implies that there will be it will cause some instability to your currency valuation or it will cause some stability to the economy because you have um, you know financing sources being pulled out from the economy or you have a influx of uh, financing resources coming into the economy in the short term that causing some kind of uh, you know um, uh, causing some distortions to the financial system to asset valuations so there traditionally when you have these uh, um, you know dramatic changes in the short term in capital flows whether it's outflow or inflow it's considered a kind of uh, a, you know complicated thing to manage that's why you know government wants to track those things 
then and also obviously you don't want to have like a consistent capital outflows because that's investment resources going out of your country. <laughs> so that means that there's something going on there that's negative. So um, so that's why traditionally governments track these things. But you, you see what, what I'm saying is in the Web3 age, it's harder and harder to track these things and it becomes meaningless also to track these things. So what I think will happen is um, governments will have their own blockchains or whatever, when, wherever their CBDC is issued, right? It's probably on their own chain. Um, if they're smart and they make it interoperable with other chains. But you, 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 you will have to count the, the, the equivalence of uh, you know, capital flow in the physical economy. The equivalence to that in the on-chain economy would be the, 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 the flows, the TVL changes <laughs> you know, to and from your national blockchain. So I imagine your national blockchain will be where most of the you know domestic activities happen. You will encourage your banks to build on your national blockchain, and your CBDC will be issued on your national blockchain, and people will transact using that chain. That primarily, uh, you know, concentrated in a geography in a jurisdiction that is called a country. Right. So values flowing in and out of that blockchain will give you a measure, kind of an equivalent measure of your capital flow in the physical economy, and that will be the way to track which is pretty clean cut, easy way to track, that gives you an indication of uh, how much money is flowing in and out of your country, so to speak. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, this is also kind of an analogy with, with the physical economy. Um, if you see this, like uh, people track these uh, for, for the on-chain national economies, that layer one chains, right? People talk about, okay, how much the TVL, how much like uh, inflows and outflows into these chains. And it actually has some kind of a relationship usually with the token price of the underlying blockchain. <laughs> so if you see like, for example, um, I don't know, so, so Solana TVL uh, goes up a whole lot or Solana NFT, uh, you know, transaction volume goes up a whole lot is usually bullish, people consider bullish for the Solana token, you see Solana price, sole token price go up, right? Essentially the sole current national currency price exchange rate appreciates. So that's exactly what you see actually in physical economy is like uh, uh, if you have capital inflow <laughs> into the country, it usually means capital, it usually means currency appreciation for the national currency and vice versa. If you have a lot of capital outflow, it usually it's uh, uh, depreciation or the cur local currency loses value. So um, it's I just find it so interesting these uh, you know on on chain and off chain counterparts these analogies and work in a similar way. Well, they they don't work in the, exactly the same channels, but um, but but actually it's a it, it's a very similar pattern, which is interesting. Uh, anyway, so next question from. Uh, how does, uh, how do, uh, okay. Uh, from glad eight or how, how long do you think before this becomes a reality? I, I, I guess he means like things that, that I was predicting in my article. Um, I, I would say, well, obviously I, I made a lot of, uh, <laughs> I made a lot of predictions in the article. So I, I, I don't think any of those things will happen in the same time frame. And also, 
this is not black and white, right? So it's a it's a gradual process. You know, like they say, you um, people underestimate, people overestimate how how much it can happen in one year, and under underestimate how much can happen in ten years. So I think it's the same deal. It will be a gradual process. It won't happen overnight, but. When you look back, it will be a sea change. So I, I would say maybe 2035 to 2040 will be the time frame when I think most of these um, mo most of these uh, ideas will, will, will have uh, you know will, will have manifested to a sufficient extent that you can observe those that, that that's actually observable. Because if you look at you know how much the uh, internet or web two technology have have uh, proliferated, right? So um, the the web two space, you started talking, uh, hearing about those in the early 2000s, right? So, and it really becomes a kind of a mainstream adoption really happened maybe like 10, 15 years later, I would say by, by around 2015. Um, that's that's when you, you, you start seeing a lot of those uh, web two stocks Actually, the fan stocks started doing really well starting, you know, I would say uh, 2013 uh, onwards, right? So um, I will give it 15 years because right now I think we are close to the 2000 of the internet. Now, you may argue crypto adoption is much faster <laughs> than the internet, so it shouldn't take 15 years. But um, but I, I think specifically regarding the things I was predicting, because a lot of those, not just involving blockchain, it also involves a lot of uh, behavior changes in the traditional economy, like uh, regulation changes, um, you know, regarding like a real estate uh, uh, laws and the property rights laws that I just talked about, right? So I, I think those will happen slower. So I would say, I would give it uh, another 15 to 20 years. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint if you think that's that's gonna be faster. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, who knows. Um, okay, ne next question. Um, Travi JB uh, asks, it's already seems like knowing how to do basic investing puts you ahead of 90% of the general population and knowing digital native investing probably puts you ahead of 90% of that remaining 10%. My question is, how do you address that knowledge inequality? Okay, so this is this is uh, responding to what I said in the article. I said uh, in the Web3 age, everybody will be an investor <laughs> because there are multiple reasons. First of all, you have the, the Web3 is kind of uh, tokenization, uh, financialization of everything, right? Everything that has a cash flow, everything that has value will be tokenized, will be financialized. So there will be this, uh, you know, outburst of a number of assets, number of things that you can invest in. So it's like uh, internet create this explosion of information, right? You have uh, way much more content than you can ever consume, Informa way much information, uh, way more information than you can ever consume. Um, I think this was this was what happened in 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 the Web three uh, space. Right now, you have like uh, I don't know ten thousand crypto tokens, and people think that's a lot, right? <laughs> but we haven't seen nothing yet. You know, we we have only it's it's only a very very small percentage of the assets in the world is tokenized right now. So we are going to see this uh, explosion of assets, just like we see an explosion of information in the Web two age. 
So that means it's gonna take so much time and energy to just uh, to gather information, to evaluate those opportunities, to actually, you know, think about how you would allocate your portfolio. So that's already a, like a more than a full-time job. Um, if you consider, oh, it's hard to keep up with crypto <laughs> these days, imagine if you have a thousand times, 10,000 times more types of assets in the space. So um, there, there really, really requires, uh, you know, more than full-time job. And on the other hand, you see that um, the nature of work is changing, right? Um, we have a lot of machinization, automation that's taking away a lot of jobs, and we will have less and less jobs in the future, and uh, jobs will be done more and more efficiently. Productivity growth is uh, uh, it's a continual going to be seen going to be a thing it's going to be on the way up right so working hours will be going down whether it's uh you know across the board or just in some segments of population or some segment of the population may not have a job at all uh job in the you know in the sense as we know it in the 20 20th century sense of the job right so that gives that that means you have more time and you have more 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 things to manage you have more things to do for your portfolio so that's why I, I think everybody will be an investor. At least a good chunk of the middle class will be a investor class. You know, you used to have stay home, stay home mom. I think in the future you have stay stay at home investors. Uh, it could be the mom, it could be the dad, it you know, it could be the grandma. I don't know. <laughs> so. Um, so 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 I, I think that corresponds to that this uh, this. Uh, reader's question is how do you address the knowledge inequality because most people are do not have that is not equipped with that knowledge to actually make good judgment on their portfolios right so um i i think yeah that that's a legit point but the thing is you 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 see it's um web3 is not like a, a panacea or it's not a utopia world right it's um, it's not like I, I think some of the technologists um, that are positive a lot of VCs or um, a lot of thought leaders in the Web three space tend to see this uh, as if it's a cure all um, you know drug of any of any uh, uh, human human ills in society. It's definitely not. <laughs> you 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 always have inequalities in society. Um, and uh, one of the inequalities caused by the inequality of knowledge, right? Uh, but I do think at least the playing field will be more and more levered because of Web3, but it's not going to make the inequality go away. So um, an analogy to this, in the Web3 space, um, you know, I, I don't know if, you're, if you remember 15, 20 years ago, there is this uh, very popular theory about long tails of internet. Um, <laughs> so this very popular theory says, with the internet, we are going to have, you know, equality of uh, of uh, creators and products because uh, the 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 long tails of products, uh, products and services will get a lot more attention than in the traditional economy. Why? The argument is that you, you, if you go to like a physical supermarket, 
there's shelf space is limited, right? You have one aisle in a supermarket, you probably put 200 products on your shelves. So if you're not on the shelf space, you do not have a chance as a product. And in the supermarket, you only have so much real estate, you can only stock so many products, okay? But with the internet, your catalog is limitless, right? Your inventory is at the back end, is not consumer facing. All the customers see is tens of thousands of whatever products that you have. It's like the Amazon is the web mall. It has so much more collection um, than a traditional supermarket, right? So the argument is that because the selection is so wide now, it creates the opportunity for exposure for those products that's at the tail end of attention span. span. Those niche products, those uh, products that don't have a brand name, but actually is useful or fits a certain need, they will have more of an opportunity to get ahead. So in that sense, internet is uh, you know creating equal opportunity for a wider set of products and services and uh, you know uh, content or so on and so forth. So sounds very good, right? <laughs> Does that actually happen? Um, I, I think I, I well I, there there are some research out there, um, and the and the answer is pretty much no. <laughs> it didn't pay, it didn't play out that way. Well, it it played out in in a certain way. I I, I think that's true. You 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 cannot argue. You I think you everybody can observe that internet did equalize a lot of things, right? It equalized information access. Uh, a lot of materials, like if you wanted access information and learning materials is so much easier these days compared to before when you have to go to a library and find a physical paperback book to find some information, right? So, and also you can, everybody can create content, everybody can create something on the internet and sell, right? So you equal, like that's an extreme equalization uh, of, uh, of a playing field in that sense. But if you look at what's actually, where the internet exposure actually go to online, right? It still only goes to the top tier of brands or the products or the services that has the most exposure. So I, I, I can even say, you know, um, traditional wisdom is like maybe it's the, you know, in sales, uh, product sales, it's like 80, 20, maybe like a, 20% of the products take, um, you know, uh, uh, take, take, uh, occupies 80% of the sales volume. With the internet, it probably goes to 90-10. Now you have 10% of the top products and services uh, that captures 90% of sales or 90% of eyeballs. And you see this on Amazon, you see this on Netflix, you see this on YouTube, you see it on Spotify, you know, everywhere. On Spotify, yes, you can create, everybody can upload music these days, right? Um, and uh, you have recommendation engines that creates some exposures, uh, if, even if you don't do anything to promote your album. But the thing is, it definitely favors the brands, the, the, the top tier products a whole lot more and gives those a whole lot more exposure. And because it's like a, the catalog is so long, the search, um, the search cost is so huge now for people. So actually the average consumer 
even they gravitate towards the, um, the, the top tier products and services even more compared to like a pre-internet age. So, so, so this is like a complicated reality that the utopian internet vision did not play out as, exactly as described, right? So it played out in a certain sense, it played out, but it's not entirely as described. I think the same thing gonna happen in Web3 is it's going, it's, it's creating a lot of more opportunities for sure. Everybody can create an NFT. If you have the chops, you can, you know, bootstrap value for your assets and you can issue a token and, uh, you know, crowdsource the funding for your projects and whatnot. Everything is being, that playing field is being leveled, right? But at the same time, I think it's the same thing that's happened, that's going to happen as in the Web3 space. You will also have concentration where the best, the most powerful, the the, 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 the projects that get the most traffic are going to get even more traffic, <laughs> even going get even more eyeballs and, uh, and, uh, concentration of, of resources. So, um, you know, the world is not black and white. I, I see both are happening, um, will be happening in, in the web three space. Actually, this is something I'm, I'm going to write about is <laughs> who, 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 who win and who lose in, in the web three space. Uh, but that's for another day. So, um, next question, uh, gosh, we're running out of time. Next question from MSC blockchain. Uh, the proof of stake system is delegation of those who can afford to stake. When we end up where we started, where the largest, the larger the stake, more voting power. In other words, more money equals more stake and more influence. So this is, this is the comment on, on, on what I was uh, saying in my article that you have these uh, proof of stake chains. These, uh, what I'm saying is the staking is going to be the third most important uh, mechanism for value distribution aside from wages and salaries and capital incomes and such as interest and dividends paid. So uh, traditionally capital and labor incomes, those that I just mentioned, are the primary forms of value of how you distribute the economic gains in, in a society to the participants, to your population, right? So, but blockchain has inve invented this third way called staking, which is really, I, I would say in a lot of cases, it's a more active format of capital income, or it's a combination of, uh, you know, both providing a product, providing a service because you, you're providing capital to secure something, you know, on chain, re, uh, to secure resources on chain, uh, to, sorry, to in, in, enhance security on chain, or you provided a capital to, as uh, say, deposit insurance or to improve the stability of a DeFi protocol. So it's really a combination of, uh, both a exchange of, uh, you know, services and also it's, it's a capital income. Um, so, uh, in, 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 I expect that staking income is, is going to become the third most important way for us to distribute value to the population as a society. So this question is saying, well, staking, you still have inequality, right? So more people, they can stake more. So they get higher income. Yeah. <laughs> what else do you expect? Um, I don't think this is, I don't think there's, uh, there's anything wrong with that. You know, it's again, this is not like you, it's not like the web three is going to cre create a communism. 
it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's still, you know, uh, uh, you know, ca any kind of capitalistic society, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a unequal society because that provides the incentive for people to actually do something with their money <laughs> or to get more resources, right? So, um, you, you, you provide bigger capital, of course. Why shouldn't you have more say in the protocol or, 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 or in the why, why shouldn't you have more influence in the project? I think you definitely should. It's just like if you're a majority stakeholder of a company, if you have a majority voting power, you call the shots. <laughs> you you should you should have more 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 deter you know more more right more power to determine the direction or the future of something. If you have more resources at stake. Why, why is there anything wrong with that? So, um, but what's different here is that I, I think uh, with, with the staking, you at least you're leveling the playing field in the sense that whether you stake $1 or you stake $100 million, you get the same rate of return, right? And in, in the present system, in the current system, what we have, we, we don't even have that. What we have is, if you're a rich person, you get you get much higher return on your capital compared to if you're a poorer person, right? If you're a rich person, you you have a lot more investment opportunities that are, you know, potentially a whole lot more lucrative compared to the average person who can only put their money in the bank, okay, in their savings account, which pays nothing, or they buy some common stocks, <laughs> or they buy a house. So that's about it. What other opportunities do you have as a average pro, like the average income or a poor person? But as, as a rich person, you have a much wider selection of investment opportunities that give you higher returns. But in the crypto world, if you stake your income, you, your income is at the same rate of return. Okay, at, at least that, that part is already a lot more fair compared to the current system. So, but um, I think if you stake more, if you stake more money, if you put if you put more resources at stake, of course you get more money in, money in return. You should. Why why shouldn't you? Um, okay, so that's that. Um, all right, should we do one more? Uh, let's see. Uh, next question, Antonio M. Why decentralization is superior to centralization? It's not. <laughs> I know, I know a lot of crypto people like uh, will say, uh, yeah, uh, this project is not decentralized, therefore bad. This project is not enough censorship resistant, therefore bad. I, I don't know why people say that. There are a lot of ideological bullshit in this space. You know, some people in like a web three is like more religious than Catholic church. Um, it just tells you, you know, humans don't change. We need religion, whether it's uh, Web One, Web Zero, Web Three. <laughs> People will find some way to find their to to create a religion out of something. Um, you know, centralize the system. They are more efficient. They're more agile. Agile. They're flexible. They're cheap. Uh, there's nothing wrong with centralized systems. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, and and also, this is also. Uh, some people say, okay, centralized system, not censorship resistant. 
The thing is, censorship resistance is not a big deal. It's not really a big value prop of Web3, in my opinion, okay? Most people don't even care about censorship resistance. Um, what, what, what you resist, resist whom? Resist what? If you're in a, like a, you know, if you live in a, some miserable, like a di dictator, authoritarian country uh, run by a ruthless dictator, um, yeah, sure, but that's that's a very small part of the world, okay? Um, that's definitely not a main mainstream adoption use case, and 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 also I I, I don't know why why people are trying to, you know, make make the make make it such a big deal about censorship resistant as a as a, towards government. <laughs> I think ex excluding government from Web three is extremely childish. In the U.S., you know, government employs 15% of people in the U.S., okay? 15% of your friends and families and uh, uh, neighbors and whatnot, acquaintances, work for the government and get paid by the government. They're part, a huge part of the economy, okay? And, and why, why, why are those people your enemy? <laughs> I don't understand. And, and also, um, the government sector is actually going to get bigger. Why? Because you have population aging. So government liability, uh, you know, is, is getting bigger. That's why, you know, every government is being deficit financed because, <laughs> you know, obligations getting bigger. Uh, so, and, and, and also you have automation, you have, you know, robots taking away people's jobs and this transaction, this transition period, okay, eventually we go to a new equilibrium uh, between supply and demand of jobs. But this transition period is go not going to be exactly a smooth ride, okay? So I, I think you're going to see the public sector is going to get bigger because the government is going to have to take up the slack of where the market leaves out. Is What the market is going to do is it's going to shed more laborers, <laughs> okay? So the government, sec the public sector has got to pick up the slack in some way. So that's why I think it's, it's a trend you see in, in, across the board in, 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 in actually many, many countries, whether they are democratic countries or authoritarian countries, government is getting bigger. Okay. So it's, it's not exactly some, someone's uh, evil plot for government to get bigger, but it's, you, you know, the, the trend of our time, it's inevitable. Population aging, aut aging automation, these are two biggest trends driving the, you know, uh, increasing size of the public sector, sector, at least in this transition period, okay? Um, so I just don't think this is, this is a value prop of Web3. The, the really significant value prop of Web3 is about the value accrual. It's about where the value is being distributed. So th this, this is the merit, I think you can argue, of, uh, for decentralization. It's decentralization it allows the value, the gains of the system to potentially be more evenly distributed compared to a centralized system if you have a Facebook, if you have Amazon in the world, you know, they, they, they run a marketplace, yes, but they capture most of the gains in the marketplace, okay? So it, it, it's essentially only a small set of the population gets the gain. So that's, that's the downside of the centralized system. Uh, to me, that, that downside is, is, a, is a economic calculation.
So, but it's it's not a technology calculation. The, the fact the fact is technology-wise, centralized system, more flexible, cheaper, easier to run, more you know more agile. Okay. Um, but the thing is, the decentralization of value accrual. I don't think you necessarily have to rely on the decentralization of technology. You could have a relatively centralized technology platform or a blockchain platform that runs the economic model of Web3, which is more equal distribution of value or allow more level, leveling uh, you know, of playing field, of uh, you know, allow the uh, economic gains of the system to be distributed to a wider set of the participants. So, but, but that is not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with the decentralization of technology, I don't think, okay? So, um, so the answer is, the answer to why decentralization should be superior than centralization, the answer is it's not superior. <laughs> and also, uh, the second part of the question, if you let a company be managed by a community, uh, the company will go under fast. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, anything need to be led by leaders and the success ultimately depends on them, though. So, uh, okay, I think what he's trying to say is uh, basically companies managed by a community is no management. <laughs> it will be a badly run company, which I don't disagree, okay? Um, I, I think again, uh, right now, this, uh, a lot of the ex these experimentations about these autonomous organizations, so-called DAOs, is at a very um, preliminary stage, okay? They really can't do much. They, this, this is not a way to manage a complicated organization. Um, but they do have their, I think they do have their place in the sense that th there, there are projects that are more straightforward to manage, for example, the kind of project that we already mentioned, such as like real estate investment, for example. You could have the community, the Dell community, vote on what houses you want to buy. <laughs> and uh, you, 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 you vote on the, uh, the, 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 you know, what houses to buy, how, what, 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 what is the amount. And uh, you buy those houses, you rent those houses out, and uh, you have, uh, you know, um, the, the, the payouts completely done on chain and completely automated with the parameter changes only happen when there is a vote on their changes. Because this, this type of organization has a very specific set of uh, function. It's very simple, okay? Um, it's very straightforward and the, and, and the value of uh, being trustless um, is so much greater than the value of some kind of discretionary decision making. If that is the situation, then sure, the, the, the DAO model is superior. So I think that's why I think for, for some you know, investment projects, um, this, this, is, this is probably a, a kind of uh, organizational uh, structure that can work better than a, you know, a traditional company. But is this going to replace traditional company structure? I don't think so. I think they're going to coexist. But this is the more primitive, more you know, simpler form of a uh, of, uh, simpler way of organizing human activities still. Um, OK, we're really, really running out of time. 
the last question really fast because someone is asking again from John T. What are your top five projects that you think will succeed when the crypto market grows more? I think I already answered something like this um, maybe like a, one or two videos ago because someone I remember asked like what, what's my top four projects, something like that. I don't think it, in a nutshell it, they, they haven't changed a whole lot, okay? But um, just let, let me let me just like uh, do a quick recap. Um, I, I think at this stage, right, um, basically you have Web3 in a very primitive uh, emerging uh, stage of development. You don't have a whole lot of on-chain uh, real use cases yet, except, uh, you know, some DeFi NFT stuff. And a lot of these things are extremely hyped, right? So I, I think the, 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 the best investment will be in the infrastructure space, which means you have your layer one and layer two of the world, and you have these, uh, all the other infrastructures, such as, you know, the, uh, what's uh, immediately coming up this year is the interoperability and the, you know, multi-chain scaling, the, um, you know, composability cross-chain, that kind of projects. Um, so, and also cross-chain bridge, bridges. So, so all these uh, different segments of the infrastructure space, that's number one. I think you should pay attention to. So the layer ones, you know, aside from your Ethereum, Bitcoin of the world, which, um, you know, uh, you, you, different people have different opinions about them. Um, so, but aside from that, I think you have the, the, the two, the, the layer ones that I'm most uh, optimistic about is still uh, Solana and Avalanche. Um, the reason being, I, I think Solana is going to corner the market for the type of use cases that requires um, platform-wide stay sync and platform-wide easy composability. Um, maybe you, you, maybe that's 10, 15% of all the crypto project use cases that happen in the future. I don't know. But even that is a huge market, right? I think Solana is going to corner that market because everybody else is trying to go modular, and modular chains, and you sacrifice some kind of composer, you you sacrifice composability and interoperability to some extent. Okay, so um, so I I think that's why I think Solana is going to corner that one part of the use case, and and also this is uh, it's. It's the L1 that has the most adoption right now. And by the way, I I don't I I'm not holding Solana now Avalanche tokens right now. Just to 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 be completely open with you, okay? But I I do think because I I think there are better opportunities in, in the short term because uh, those are already pretty big. But in the long term, what I'm saying is, if you just if you're asking me what would be the my my long term. Uh, but if I think about you know what what would be more most sustainable in the long term that those those two I, I think will be my current best bet, and um, Avalanche also you know I, I think it's got uh, um, it, it, it's it's technology wise it's got a better performance than a lot of other these uh, L, um, other alternative layer ones, and uh, they're they're rolling out their uh, so-called subnets which are essentially uh, modular blockchains, essentially, you know, uh, separate blockchains, individual blockchains that use the uh, Avalanche consensus protocol, uh, share the same set of validators, 
uh, but it's running. It's it's a you know it's it's a project project based blockchain, right? So um, those they they they're going to roll roll out those this year. That hasn't got a whole lot of traction yet. I'm sure there's some usability issue, UX issue, Roblox that they're going to need to overcome for this to become a thing. But theoretically, conceptually, this going to be, I think this is going to be the direction of the future for most of these blockchains, which is going to a modular or app chain structure, so app-specific chain structure. So um, that, I, I think if you're interested in the project, you, you should keep track of how their sub, subnets uh, uh, progress, whether it get traction or not. Um, right now, I'm not seeing traction. It's unproven, okay? But I think the concept is uh, is, is aligned with so where where the blockchain space is going to go in the future. Um, so um, other type of infrastructures will be things like, you know, bridges. Uh, I think I also mentioned before, Synapse, multi-chain, um, those, you know, cross-chain bridges uh, that you can look into. Um, and uh, small cap projects that are in the infrastructure space that I already mentioned before, um, Juno, Octopus, um, which, are, which are on Cosmos and Near, that you can you know, check it out if you're interested and know more, but you know, do, your, do your own research, right? Because those are small cap. Uh, you don't want to bet a whole lot on those, as, as I, you know, we already talked about before. This is like moonshots. You, you don't want to buy the house <laughs> on those, right? Um, and also, um, what else? Um, oh, oh, um, uh, and, and another um, type of infrastructure that I'm also optimistic about is uh, something like Pocket Network, which is a decentralized RPC service. Essentially, it's a com decentralized competitor of uh, service like Alchemy and uh, Infura, right? So it basically, it allows um, blockchain applications to actually communicate with the blockchain by you know, send, sending these requests like you send your API request from web app to your back, backend, you know, roughly speaking, okay? Without actually running the chain, without actually running a node of the actual chain. So, um, which is which is most of most of these blockchain apps do. They don't actually run the node of of the of the chain that they run on, right? And also, if you're running, <laughs> if your app is multi-chain, it gets even more complicated. So these services, these RPC services, provide that kind of uh, you know convenience for uh, applications. And uh, uh, Pocket Network is like a decentralized service, decentralized RPC service. Um, I think they're they're getting some good traction, so you can check it out that too in the infrastructure space. Okay, um, I think what else? Um, okay, aside from infrastructure, um, I, uh, which I also mentioned before, stable coins, algorithmic space, stable coins, you know, Frax and Luna. Uh, those I'm also you know, I, I think those are. Uh, that 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 industry that sector is promising. Whether there's specific projects will uh, prevail, that 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 is the that is the question. Okay, um, and then obviously gaming, uh, the GameFi and the blockchain gaming of the world, which is uh, so hot right now. But the the downside is these projects they don't have. It, it's like right now this space it has so much noise. 
you you just it's very hard to tell uh, good projects from bad. Um, so I'm still optimistic about the DeFi kingdom, and I have some stakes in uh, Gala, and in the, another you know project on Arbitron called Magic, uh, you know things like that. But they're they're pretty all all pretty small. Um, so, but there are a lot of these gaming projects. They they are there are so many of them these days. But you know if you if you invest in any of those, I, I suggest you, you actually use, use the project, you actually play their games. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and, and to, to, to evaluate the opportunity yourself. Okay. So uh, that's all for today. I will talk to you next time.